Holy Father, we praise and glorify your great name. You heal the brokenhearted. You bind up their wounds. You determine the numbers and names of all the stars. Your understanding and knowledge is beyond measure. You lift up the humble. You cast down the wicked. We rejoice and sing of your great glory. You take pleasure in all who fear you and all who hope in your steadfast love. Lord, you lavish us with abundant blessings. You make the wind to blow and the waters to flow. You purchased our depraved souls from condemnation and have promised us an unending future in your presence. Lord, we thank you for the privilege of prayer, for knowing that we can bring every concern to you. Nothing is ever too large, nothing is ever too small. Nothing is ever too complicated. Nothing is ever too simple. Nothing ever bores you. You know all our needs. You generously and kindly supply them all. We possess assurance, assurance of a promised inheritance. We are your people, chosen before the world's foundation, predestined according to your perfect purposes. We rest in your power, your marvelous resurrection power, the power that raised Jesus and seated him at your right hand. He is our head. We are his body. We pray that you might fill our hearts and minds with these truths today, that you might liberate us from all doubts and fears. Let us hear only your strong and clear voice today. Lord, conform us to the image of Christ by the power of your Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I want us to think for just a moment this morning back to the book of Acts at the beginning of the church. The very beginning of the church. Jesus has been crucified. He has resurrected. He has walked among the disciples and among others, followers, for some 40 days, Acts chapter 1, He ascends into the heavenlies. We're told that there were about 120 followers at that point. And they replaced Judas with Matthias, probably at the Lord's instruction, though we don't have anything to indicate one way or the other. Acts chapter 2, we see the day of Pentecost arrive. The Scripture says that they were all gathered together and that the Holy Spirit descended in dramatic fashion and filled them all. And the gospel was spoken in numerous languages, communicating to a great number of people. Peter preached and 3,000 souls were added to their number. They devoted themselves to teaching, to fellowship, to breaking of bread, to prayer, they broke bread in homes each and every day. They were praising and worshiping God. They were having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Acts chapter 3. A lame beggar is converted, healed outside the temple through Peter and John. 
They, having proclaimed the gospel there, were detained, shall we say, or arrested. They were warned. They were threatened to stop preaching the resurrection. When they returned to their friends, they all gathered together and they acknowledged God's sovereignty. They asked Him in prayer for boldness to continue to speak His word with boldness. And great power accompanied them as the apostles preached. Great grace, the Scripture says, was upon them all. And this pattern continued amid opposition, amid persecution, amid sin. God's people leaned into God's incredible power. The great gospel work followed. In Ephesians 1, Paul writes to his friends in Ephesus, Believers, people he had spent a great deal of time with, discipling, teaching them truth. Ephesus was dominated by false worship. The economy and the culture was all attuned to the goddess Diana, or Artemis. Christians were few, and they were basically the bane or scourge of the community. Paul writes to them to focus their attention, to remind them that they are in Christ. He wants to remind them how great their privilege and their power are. He wants to encourage them to be triumphant as the church, as God has predestined them to be. The lesson is no less valuable for us here today. The momentum is clearly surging against Christianity in our world today. It would be easy for us to surrender, to be quiet, to keep a low profile. It would be easy to feel helpless, even defeated. And Paul moves from doxology to prayer. Verses 3 through 14, he's praising and honoring, exalting God and all that God has done on their behalf. Now he moves into prayer. He reminds the Christians of this incredible power in Christ. He prays out of a deep sense of gratitude and abiding confidence. So I want us to unpack this prayer this morning. I want us to understand how God fills His church with power. He begins by saying, for this reason. Paul is clearly pointing back to the previous verses. Particularly, he's focused on verses 13 and 14. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus, and because of your love toward all the saints... I do not cease to give thanks for you, he says. In other words, Paul tells us that he is thankful. He's thankful. I do not cease. It is an unceasing gratitude that Paul senses because of what God has done in and through these people in Ephesus. And for that matter, Paul would probably say he felt that way about every. Christian, every group of followers that he'd had contact with. I do not cease to give thanks for you. Now, what leads you 
to be thankful. What makes you thankful? What encourages you to be thankful? What draws gratitude out of your heart? It's not always easy to be thankful, is it? I wonder, it's easy maybe, easier when we experience good fortune, when we experience something that pleases us, that satisfies us, that gratifies us in some particular way. But when we hear about others' good fortune, are we as thankful? Do we sense this gratitude? When we hear about the kingdom of God advancing, when we hear about God's purposes being achieved, are we grateful and thankful as we would be for something that maybe makes our life easier and better? When we hear about God blessing other people, do we rejoice with them? Or do we resent it? Do we find ourselves coveting maybe what they've experienced? Do we find ourselves criticizing it? Do we belittle it? Actually, humans, even Christians, struggle, do we not? We struggle with these things. We struggle with complaining and criticizing and accusing. And all these things indicate a spirit of ingratitude. Let me take you this morning to Acts or Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, you're familiar with this parable that Jesus told in verses 9 through 12. It says that he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. This is what he said. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, or we might say a religious man, the other a tax collector, probably a greedy man, a materialistic man. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thusly. He said, God, I thank you. What for? For the great things that you have done? No, he says, I thank you that I'm not like other men extortioners, unjust, adulterers, even like this tax collector. I thank you for that. Does that qualify for gratitude? He used the right word, but do we really believe he was grateful? It doesn't seem to me that he was grateful at all. It was kind of a backhanded way to brag on himself, right? Do we really find ourselves thinking that this could pass for gratitude. He was prideful. He was self-righteous. Listen to what Paul wrote to Timothy, his last letter, 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents. Wait for it. Ungrateful, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good. Romans 1, 18-25, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. 
For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, wait for it again, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, etc., etc. The lack of thankfulness is a distinguishing mark of unbelief, of being an unbeliever. Now, this is convicting, right? How often I find myself being maybe leaning into ingratitude rather than gratitude. It's stunning to me that Paul is sitting in prison somewhere, Rome most likely, and he's thinking about these believers who are going through challenging times, and he wants to encourage them. Most of us, me, I'd be sitting there commiserating with myself, right? Why am I in this situation? Why? I've been serving the Lord. I've been preaching the gospel fervently and faithfully, and here I sit in prison. Instead of thinking about these believers who maybe need encouraging somewhere else, and to be grateful, to be thankful. Thankful for God's sovereign work in them from before the foundation of the world, for being included in that as a great privilege to serve Him, and to know that God is going to accomplish His purposes in and through them moving forward. He wants them to celebrate that and be reminded of that. Gratefully. Luke 17. On the way to Jerusalem, Jesus was passing along among Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When we saw him, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. Just like that. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back. Praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now, he was a Samaritan. Samaritans and Jews didn't like one another. In fact, they hated one another. Jesus answered, We're not ten cleansed. Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, rise and go your own way. Your faith has made you well. Thankfulness. It's defined as being conscious of a benefit received. Expressive of thanks. Being well pleased or glad. Some synonyms for thankfulness. Blissful. Delighted. Glad. Joyful. Gratified. Pleased, satisfied. David Powell says, Thanksgiving is not simply a reaction to random acts of kindness. It is a way to affirm the supremacy of God the Creator and the mighty acts He has done on our behalf. Marvin Tate suggests, and I think he is right, that praise and thanksgiving have a symbiotic relationship in that one cannot live without the other. 
Now think about that. Praise, praise, worship of God, and gratitude. Isn't that what we see Paul doing? He's been engaged in doxology and praising and worshiping God, and it leads into this, I'm grateful, I'm thankful for what God has done in you and through you, and you too should be thankful. I I don't cease to give thanks for you. And you shouldn't give, cease to give thanks either. In both praise and thanksgiving, God is acknowledged as a powerful God who alone can deliver His people from distress and evil. More importantly, He deserves endless thanksgiving because He alone is God. It's fair to say that the root of praise and blessing is thanksgiving or thankfulness. Paul's rehearsed the incredible covenant of redemption, how the Holy Trinity achieves the fulfillment of this covenant, all for God's glory, all for the worship of God, and there is an exultant gratitude filling his heart. Because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you. I have to tell you, it convicted me this week as I studied this. It made me mindful. I want you to know that I'm thankful for you, for this church, for what God is doing in you and through you. I don't tell you that enough, and for that, I'm sorry. I apologize. But I really am thankful for you. Thankful for the work that God has begun in you, and thankful for the promise that He gives us that He who began a great work in us will complete it, right? And so it will be in this church as well. I want this kind of attitude, this gratitude in my heart and in my life. A relentless artesian well always overflowing. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16-18 says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, not just the pleasant ones, not just the ones that I desire for myself, not just the things I want for myself, but in Everything. Why? Because this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you, he says. If I lean into the sovereignty of God, the predestination of God, I can trust that everything he brings my way, whether it's painful or whether it's pleasing, is always according to God's best for me at that moment. God's a good God. He's a benevolent God. He's a generous God. So if He can shed, share His generosity in our lives and still produce His own glory and honor and produce sanctification in our lives, that's what He will do. But if it takes some pain and suffering along the way, He says, I will do that because the ends are greater than our comfort. Not only does Paul tell us that he is thankful, but he says, I am prayerful. I'm prayerful. This is a prayer that he is uttering on their behalf. Most of us struggle with prayer. Christians generally aspire to pray. We have great intentions. We think it's important to pray, but for some reason it's difficult to be faithful and consistent in prayer. I ask myself this week, why is it? Why is it so hard for us to be consistent and faithful in praying? Well, first of all, one reason I think is because it's kind of strange, isn't it? It's kind of strange. When you think about it, prayer is one of the most foreign things we do as Christians. 
We read other things besides the Bible, Christian books. It's common for us to socialize with others, sing songs together, and even occasionally discuss ethics and morality, even in non-religious settings. But prayer is exclusively a spiritual practice. Think about it. We're talking, sometimes out loud, to someone we don't see, usually don't hear, and don't even sense or feel. And yet we know this is supposed to be very important for our Christian lives. So I think, even subconsciously, it's a bit strange for us, even though our society does talk about prayer. Secondly, I think it's difficult because it requires and is a discipline. Not many of us are that great at disciplines, are we? Diet's a discipline. I'm really good at my diet. I eat whatever I want. That way I don't have a problem. That's my discipline, right? Exercise. I got an amen on that one. Thank you very much, brother. We will buffet the body together. Exercise is a discipline. All of us know we need to do it, even if it's just taking a, you know, a modest walk every now and then. But staying with it is sometimes a challenge. Forcing ourselves to give up things that are maybe a little bit more comfortable at the time to go do that which we need to do. Prayer requires making it a priority and paying attention to follow through on it as a priority. Thirdly, it's a struggle for us because it can appear to be unproductive, can it? Can appear to be, seem to be, an unproductive use of time. Most of us, if we're honest, will say, well, I need to get these things done first, then I'll circle back and pray. I've got to get these done because I don't know if I'm going to have enough time. If I pray first and then do these, I'm going to run out of time and it may not serve me well. So it appears to be unproductive. Our time and energy is needed, we think, in more tangible activities. As the real tasks press in with the time constraints, we often postpone it. And when you do, you rarely ever make it back, do you? We rarely make it back. A fourth thing that I think makes it difficult is we do not want or think we need help. It's usually when we are at our wit's end that we turn to God in prayer, not when we're handling things day to day, the majority of things in our daily living, that we are convinced, might not admit it, but we're really convinced we can handle this on our own, right? I can take care of this, Lord. You take a break. I'll let you know when I need your help. As long as I already have a plan or a strategy, I just need to get after it. Paul is prayerful. Why? Because of the spiritual blessings, the election of his readers. He's thankful for God's great work in them and through them. Thankfulness and prayerfulness are two sides of the same coin. He's acknowledging that God is the author of all these things, so he is giving thanks, but he's also acknowledging that God is the author of all future things, right? So he is praying. He's lifting up his hopes and his desires before them to the Lord, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. He prays. He prays that the Holy Spirit will give them understanding. 
not a specialized wisdom or some understanding about riddles or puzzles or even a new revelation, but he wants them to gain a deeper understanding of God, of the character of God, of the ways of God, the attributes of God. He does not assume that being richly blessed as they were, that they need no further understanding or growth or application in these truths. He aspires for them to have deeper knowledge of God's will and saving purposes revealed in Christ. This is what he's praying for, that they might understand God more fully. Now, how does this happen? We know that spending time in His Word, spending time in prayer are critically important. These disciplines enable us to have our eyes focused upon God and to learn of Him. Also, the things that we go through, the things that God ushers into our lives, whether they be pleasing or whether they be difficult, God uses them to reveal Himself to us. We combine that with the Word of God and our prayer, and we have deeper understanding of God. He says that you have the eyes of your hearts enlightened. Heart here addresses the center of one's mind, will, and spirit. He wants them to receive spiritual insight, particularly about three blessings. He wants there to be light where there is darkness, to overcome this darkness. The first blessing is the hope to which He has called them. He wants them to have understanding, particularly to have their hearts cleared their vision clear to understand the hope to which He has called them, the hope of God's calling, an expectation for a glorious future. 2 Corinthians 4.18 says, As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. What is this hope? What's it about? Well, it involves our salvation, doesn't it? It involves the salvation that we've been redeemed. We came into this world condemned. We came into this world bent after the direction of Adam. We came into this world as sinners. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But salvation is sometimes difficult for us to comprehend. We have trouble comprehending it because we can't appreciate the threat as it exists. Anyone who has received a terminal prognosis from the doctor has some insight into what it means to have a threat, a serious threat, that your life is in jeopardy. Anyone who's experienced the serious entrapment or bondage can appreciate this idea of salvation. But many fail to comprehend the idea of salvation because they don't think they have any need. They think, in our culture today, we have many people who may say that they're Christians. They may say that they follow, you know, clear teaching, doctrinal teaching. They may follow a traditional uh, denomination. But at the heart, they are practicing incarnationists. They believe that they're going to be reincarnated. That, th- that they just move through this life, and when this life is over, they move into the next life, and they see all the people who have gone before them, and they just take up with a new 
opportunity in a life to come. They don't sense that they're in jeopardy. It's not their perspective. But one day we're all going to clearly see powerfully the peril before us. It seems like theory right now, but God makes it clear that it's truth. Our hope involves our righteousness. Currently, we can only compare our goodness with one another. I'm better than you are. You're better than I am. That kind of thing. But we don't understand what it means to be approved and in the presence of a holy God who is without sin. We don't just need our sin to be forgiven. We need the righteousness of God. This is what Christ offers us in our salvation. This is our hope. One day I will be righteous as He is righteous. I can't wait for that to happen. I can't wait for there to be no more sin. No more temptation. Resurrection. There's coming a resurrection for those who are in Christ. Raised in a new body. Raised incorruptible, never to be subject to suffering or death ever again. Eternal life, life without end. We only know the finite right now. Everything we know is finite. The end is always coming, isn't it? The end of vacation, it's always coming. You can't wait for it to start. Once it starts, you know it's going to end. Parties end. Trips end. Books and movies end. This life ends. God's hope promises everlasting life. Incorruptible, resurrected bodies. Imagine living without any prospect of death, sickness, pain, or suffering. No one, imagine being somewhere where no one knows what COVID is or cares. Imagine living where every moment is perfect peace, joy, and fruitfulness. God's glory, God's glory is a part of our hope. Dark and gloomy times when the clouds roll in, and it may go on for days. You know, as we head toward winter, there will be days on end where the sun doesn't show itself. And you begin to wonder if it's still there. But there is this star, this sun. It's a bright, it's brighter than we can ever imagine. When the clouds clear, it's warm, and it provides incredible energy. And the clouds are gone, and the sky turns crystal clear. The sun is brighter than you ever remember or imagined it could be. Eternity. Eternity is going to be even greater. It will dwarf these images that we have. I've heard people talk about having cataract surgery. You know, the lens of the eye begins to get cloudy through exposure to to sun and light over time. And the vision diminishes. The vibrancy of what you see diminishes. People say when they have this cataract surgery, they go in and they remove the lens and replace with an artificial lens that's clear. 
And they will say, I didn't realize how blue the sky was or green the leaves were until I had this removed. We've forgotten. It diminishes with time. But eternity will be fresh like this every single day, every moment. It will never get old. It will never fade. It will never diminish. That doesn't get you excited. I don't know what will. The second thing that he points to here is the rich inheritance which he possesses in them. This is most likely not talking about our inheritance per se at this point. He's talking about God's inheritance who is us as his people. We cannot fathom how glorious it will be. Jews and Gentiles together, people of all walks, colors, nationalities, languages, all coming together and lifting their voices. Revelation 7 gives us that picture. All nations, tribes, tongues, praising God together in unity. The rich inheritance. This is what He saved us for. To honor and glorify Him together forever and ever and ever. And Then He talks about the mighty power by which He energizes them. It is incomparably great, beyond any ability to understand. Exceeding greatness to go beyond, surpass, outdo, infinitely more. First of all, this power, Christ has perfectly accomplished God's work on our behalf through this power. This is the power that Christ walked the face of this earth with, withstood every temptation, never sinned, but perfectly fulfilled the law of God and always did that which pleased the Father. Something you and I are incapable of. We fail, falter, and flounder, but God sees Christ's finished and perfect work as ours. Now just get your mind around that. Here's the, here's the requirement. The requirement to spend eternity with God is to be righteous as He is righteous. To have no sin. You and I have sinned. We faltered. We fail. We're broken. And we can't fix ourselves. We can't repair ourselves. But Christ came and took on flesh that He might live this life that God requires of us for us. Going to the cross not because of anything that He had done wrong, but because He took our sin upon Him. And there He died in our place. Suffering what we deserve to suffer satisfying the debt that was owed to God for our sin, propitiating our sin. And not only that, the blood of Christ, for those who put their trust in Him, is applied to our account, so our sin is forever covered. Forever. But He imputes to us His righteousness. Those 30-some-odd years that He lived here on the earth where He always did that which was pleasing to the Father. You and I can't do that. We're incapable of doing that. We always fail. Our hearts are bent in a wrong direction. But because Christ did it, God says this can now be attributed to your account. Your failure is cast aside. Your failure has been put on the cross. There's been this great exchange that's taken place. My sin became His sin on the cross, which He died. 
His righteousness has become my righteousness in Christ. And when God looks at me, He no longer sees my failures, my flaws, my brokenness. But He sees the righteousness of Christ. This is this power. Second, we have the Holy Spirit. One just like Jesus, now abiding in us. The one who did this for us, now dwells in us by His Spirit and equips us to desire Him, to live for Him, to honor Him. He gives us the power we need. This same resurrection power now resides in you. It hasn't been diminished. He said, it's to your advantage that I go away. If I don't go away, the helper, this comforter, this one like me, will not come to you. He is God and He dwells in us. God in you. Guides you into all the truth. Declares to you the things to come. Glorifies Christ Jesus. He takes what belongs to Christ and declares it to you. Makes it known to you. All that the Father has is Christ's. All that the Father has is Christ. And in Him, we also are fellow heirs. The Spirit gives us access to all that the Father has. Now Paul is looking at this and he takes this like a, like a beautiful gem. You know, a diamond or some other precious gem. And he keeps turning it in the light to capture the full essence of it, to continue to widen the appreciation for the beauty that's there. Paul is an expert at this. He continually is holding up the gospel and turning it ever so slightly and showing another facet, another angle, another aspect of all this grand beauty and power that is available to those who are in Christ. Every turn expands the grand view. That He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead. Have you ever considered the power at work in raising Christ from the dead? We just kind of gloss over that, don't we? We want to depict it with some kind of bright light or something, you know. Well, you know, came and moved the stone, you know. It's a heavy rock, so it took some manpower to do that. Oh, it's much bigger than that. The rock wasn't anything. In fact... They moved the rock so they could see that Jesus was resurrected, not to let him out. The decisive demonstration of God's power available to believers occurred in the resurrection and exaltation of Christ, as well as in the subjection of the powers to him and his being given as head over all the church. This paragraph, verses 20 through 23, prepares the way for the significant affirmation about the raising and enthronement of believers with the Lord. How great is the power of death? How great is the power of death? It's all-consuming, is it not? We lost a dear brother this week at this church. A week ago, Bob Sheffield laid down to go to Sleep Sunday night and didn't wake up Monday morning. That's a great way to go if your hope and faith is in the Lord. Bob told his wife good night, laid down, woke up 
to Jesus' beautiful face. That's the way it is. And we can't get our minds around how that takes place because we don't have the means. We don't even know where to begin to try to create that and make it happen. It is appointed for man to die once. And after that comes judgment. Every single person. No one eludes death. No one gets up from death. No one. Jesus Himself raised several people who had died, Lazarus being one of them. But you know what? It was just a resuscitation. They all died again. This is the incredible weight and power of sin. The grave. Jesus died not because death was more powerful. He died because He went there intentionally to pay the debt you and I owed for our sin. And He remained there for three days to prove He was indeed dead. On the third day, He he just shrugged off the icy grip of death, took His life back again, and got up and came out of the grave. In the flesh. Not as a ghost. In the flesh. He spent those 30 or 40 days we talked about earlier going around to His disciples and saying, Go ahead, see the scars. Touch the scars. Put your hand in my side and touch the scar. Let's have some food together. Understand this, that the body has resurrected from the tomb. The one and only time. The one and only time. But He is the first fruits, the Scripture says, of many more who will come forth. And we have that promise to us who are in Christ. The same power that He Himself demonstrated has been promised to those who are His elect, those who are His chosen, those who are in Christ. This is the place, he says, he ascended to the Father's throne and he is seated at his right hand. This is the ultimate place of authority in all that there is. It's not the White House. It's not the Oval Office. It's not the throne in England. It's not on some distant planet in the cosmos. It is at the right hand of God. This is where All authority is vested. Jesus said in Matthew 28, 19 and 20, 18 through 20, before He ascended back to the Father, He said, All authority has been given to Me. And I send you out. Go and make disciples in this same authority and power. It's the spot where all authority rests. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. He covers it all. He's put everything, he says, under his feet. Every name that is named, all of it under his feet. And he is head. He has given him as head over what? Hello? The church. That's us, right? The church. Look, any scrambling for power... In a church is ridiculous. We have one head. He is Christ Jesus. 
We are His body. We are His body. The church is His body. All His glorious power is in the church. The church is the fullness of Christ filled by Him. The church now embodies, expresses, and mediates His presence to this world. One of the reasons that we are so careful, we want to be so careful to be following God's Word and to be doing things as He has instructed us to do them is because we are His body and we are a display of His glory, His person in this world. And to do any less is malfeasance. The church embodies and expresses and mediates His presence in this world. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Paul, I mean, if I'm in Ephesus and I get this letter from Paul and I'm thinking about the temple of Diana and one of these seven wonders of the ancient world and all these people devoting their lives and their livelihoods and everything to her and I'm, I'm thinking, you know what? My God's invisible. I don't know what's going on. They, they seem to have the world cornered right now. And maybe, maybe I'm just at a loss. And Paul writes this letter and says, Buck up! <laughs> Think about it! This is what God has done for you. This is who God is in you. Rest in it. Walk boldly in it. In His power and His strength. What a great prayer. What a great prayer. Father, we thank You and we bless You for who You are. Lord, You have gone to great measures to redeem us and call us unto Yourself. And Lord, we don't even, it, we, it's just the beginning. We can't appreciate how grand and glorious all of Your plans for us are. And Lord, we have this incredible message of hope. And we have this promise of your power to go with us. So we pray that, Lord, we would be unapologetic, unashamed, ever, ever vigilant to preach and proclaim your gospel in this world. No matter whether the world likes it, wants it, appreciates it, understands it or not, our job is to simply proclaim it. And you, in your power, will take the seed of the gospel and bring forth a harvest that will glorify and honor your name through all of eternity. And for that, we are part of that inheritance. And we thank you and bless you. In Jesus' name, amen. Disciples lift their eyes 
alive he stands, their friend and king. Christ, Christ he is risen. Christ is risen, he's risen indeed. Oh, sing hallelujah. Join the chorus, sing with the redeemed. Christ is risen, he's risen indeed. His words have been, they saw him and their hearts believe. But blessed are those who have not seen, yet sing hallelujah. It's found by fear, holding faith. Preach the truth and power of grace, and pouring out their lives they gain life, life everlasting. Christ is risen, He's risen indeed. Oh, sing hallelujah. Join the chorus, sing with the redeemed. Christ is risen. Raised him from the grave, the wings of our hearts to live his grace. The words of love is goodness. Christ is risen. He's risen. He's risen. He's risen. He's risen. He's risen. Christ is risen, He's risen indeed. Oh, sing hallelujah. Join the chorus, sing with the redeemed. Christ is risen, He's risen indeed. He's alive, He's alive. Heaven, heaven's gates are opened wide. He's alive, he's alive. Now, now in heaven, glorified. He's alive, he's alive. Heaven's gates are opened wide. He's alive, he's alive. Now in heaven, glorified. Put your armor on, hear the call of Christ our captain. Till now the weak can say that they are strong in the strength that God has given. With shade of faith and belt of truth, we stand against the devil's lies. An army bold whose battle cry is love. Reaching out to those in darkness. Our to war, to love the captive soul, but to rage against the captor. And with the sword that makes a wounded whole, we will fight with faith and valor. When faced with trial on every side, 
We know the outcome is secure, and Christ will have the price for which he died, an inheritance of nations. Arise, shine, for your light has come. Arise, shine, for the Right. 